Hey, welcome back to the Ascent Church Podcast. We have a great episode for you. So let's get to it. All right, John chapter 2, if you have your Bibles. I had to read all that, but I doubt we make it that far. Uh, I got readers last week, and uh, so this is my second week preaching with them. I thought my wife was going to have the harshest comment. She said uh, that I look like an old man. Uh, No, she said my glasses look like old men glasses. I still look like I'm 12. Uh, But my friend Briley Goodwin has such a a way with encouragement. And, uh, you know, he told me after the service that I look like Mrs. Claus. (laughs) Oh, you do. It's not the look that I'm going for. Uh, John chapter 2, if you have your Bibles. We're taking a break from our Ezra and Nehemiah series. Uh, during this Easter season to look at John chapter 2 because uh, in John chapter 2 we see the very first miracles of Jesus and they really serve as a parable for what Jesus is doing throughout all of his ministry. Jesus had about a three-year ministry uh, before he would go to the cross and die and then ultimately rise again, which is what we will celebrate on Easter. But last week we began this series in John chapter 2 and we looked at Jesus as he made wine. Jesus is the, the greatest party maker in the last story. And unfortunately this week Jesus is the greatest party pooper. He is going to really come in hot, as they say. Uh, very angry and mad at the temple leaders. It's really kind of interesting that Jesus is joyful and happy at a party of what we would call maybe sinners. And yet he goes to the temple, the place of the religious people. And this is where he comes, not with wine, but with a whip. This is going to be an intense sermon because Jesus is intense. Uh, Last week, I tried my hardest to preach with joy because with wine comes joy and with a whip comes judgment. And this is what Jesus brings today. And you and I, we ought to listen really closely. You know why? Because we're the church folk. We're the, we're the temple folk. We're the ones who are here listening to the words of Jesus. We're the ones who are here doing religious type activities, which makes us all the more vulnerable to be the type of people that Jesus would come with, not with wine, but with a whip. Now, I'm probably only going to make it through three verses. I want to introduce kind of what's going on here in the story. And then we're going to look at really four things that I think John is trying to show us about Jesus's ministry through this text. And ultimately, we'll end with this question of who is Jesus, because Jesus makes some radical claims, some really honestly blasphemous claims. If he is not being honest about who he is, then he ought to have died. And in fact, these are some of the claims that the Jews would take against Jesus to try him and ultimately to crucify him. So let me pray for us and then we'll jump in. Father, this is a hard text. Uh, God, if I could skip some of these kinds of messages, I would, but... Lord, my job is not to say what I want to say, but to the best of my ability, say what you have already said. So, God, I pray that you would give me courage to preach this message as boldly as you did. Uh, God, I pray that you would stir in all of our hearts the things that need to be moved out of our hearts. Lord, you are the Lord of wine. You bring the joy to our hearts, but you're also the Lord of the whip. And God, we cannot accept just one side of you. We must accept all of you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would drive out those things that need to be driven out of our heart and out of our church. Jesus, it's in your name that I pray. Amen. If you jump into verse 13, it says the Jewish, the Jewish, the Jewish Passover was near. And so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, the Jewish Passover is something that all the gospel writers talk about a lot. John, especially. Uh, It's like every story, he says Jewish Passover, Jewish Passover, Jewish Passover. Why? Well, because he wants us to get the point that the Jewish Passover is the ultimate shadow of what Jesus has come to do for us. 
In the Jewish Passover, the Jews would celebrate God's deliverance that he gave them from the Egyptians in the book of Exodus. They were under the slavery of the Egyptians. And God says, if you take an innocent lamb and you slain it and you put the blood on your door, you'll be saved from my wrath and you'll be saved from the Egyptians. You'll be delivered. This is exactly what Jesus actually comes to do. He is the lamb of God who comes to be that sacrifice so that we do not have to pay the penalty that we owe God. We are enemies of God because of our sin. And Jesus comes and he says, I will be nailed to the tree so that you do not have to be. I will perish so that you might have eternal life. And not only that, but he gives us power through his Holy Spirit so that we can overcome sin and these systems that hold us back. This is very true in the Christian life, that you're not just waiting for heaven in a far off distance, but Jesus came so that you might have power right now to live in light of the eternal life. And ultimately, Passover was about a hope. God has delivered us before he can deliver us again. And the people were leaving Egypt to go to their own land. And so it was a hope of a time in which God's reign and rule would ultimately rule over the earth. What do we see in Jesus? We see hope. His resurrection, the Bible says, is the first fruits of what is to come. Meaning one day I will be resurrected. You will be resurrected. This world will be resurrected and renewed. And as Christians, this is the hope that we hold on to. So it says he's, the Jewish Passover is near. And practically what that, that means is that uh, every man over the age of 12 that's a Jew or somebody who honored Yahweh would then make the journey, no matter how long it was, to Jerusalem. You came to Jerusalem for the Passover. So Jesus has done this many times in his life, but this time is going to be a little bit different. Uh, Jewish uh, scholars tell us it's kind of hard to put it all together, but they kind of figure that uh, Jerusalem would probably grow by about four times the amount of people during this season. Uh, people from all over would come. I was trying to think of what it would be like. Uh, I go to the Knoxville Nationals. It's a sprint car race with my grandpa every year. It's a town of about like 10,000 people. Uh, but during the Knoxville Nationals, there's over 100,000 people from all over the world cramming into this tiny little town. So there's just people everywhere. And this is kind of the picture we get of Jerusalem right now. And Jesus shows up, and the first place he goes is to the temple. And what we see at the temple is what makes Jesus very angry. Verse 14. In the temple, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves. He also found the money changers sitting there. Now, there's a couple things that are not abnormal about this that you might think are abnormal. It's not abnormal that they are selling the animals. That's actually a really smart thing to do. Because you can imagine that if you're coming from 100 miles away and all you got is a donkey, it's probably not going to be very easy to transport a goat for sacrifice. You know, you can't really put a dove on a leash. And so what they would do is when they showed up, there would be people there selling. So you could just buy your dove or buy your sheep, whatever you had to sacrifice for the worship of God. You could buy it there and not have to transport it all this way. This is something that we would probably do today if you still had to bring a goat to sacrifice. You know, like you guys have a hard enough time probably loading your kids up in the car, much less the family goat. You know, so we would have probably a a pen outside. You could buy your goats here and then I would slit its neck and you'd go home and everything would be fine. Uh, (laughs) Aren't you glad we don't do that? Amen, Amen, somebody said. Uh, (laughs) This is not a PETA approved text, by the way. But so that was actually normal. And the money changer thing was normal as well. Just like if we were to go to another country, you would have to take our American dollars and get them kind of transferred out. You know, we can't go to Mexico and use American dollars. We've got to get pesos. Well, the same is true here. You you cannot use your money. You have to use the temple's money. And so the money changing was normal and the animals were normal. What is Jesus mad about? Well, we get a hint when it says where they were selling it. They were selling it in the temple, not around the temple, in the temple. This is unacceptable to Jesus. Why? Because the temple was the place where God and man were to meet. 
Everybody knew that where God's glory resided was supposed to be in his house. It was where his name was supposed to dwell. It was where people who wanted to get close to God were supposed to come. It was not supposed to be a place of transaction. It was supposed to be a place of transformation, a place of prayer, a place of drawing near to God. And these religious leaders had made it a place of finance, a place of money, a market, so to speak. And so what does Jesus do? This is the coolest thing. This is Jesus as John Wayne. You know, he begins to make a whip. Now, I grew up thinking Jesus was like a white, pale European guy who had butterflies around him at all times. That's not the picture of Jesus we get here. He sits down and he begins to make a whip. Can you imagine the disciples as they begin to look at Jesus and slowly he begins to make a whip? I can imagine Peter like, hey, what are you doing, Jesus? And, you know, Thomas is probably like, I think he's about to get us killed. You know, what are you doing, Jesus? And he's sitting there, he's making this whip slowly. But I actually think this gives us a great picture of the wrath of God. When you think of the wrath of God, what do you think of? I tend to think of the kind of wrath that you and I have, which is this kind of wrath where we fly off the handle. You've ever experienced wrath? You're like, you're mad. You know, the people in the left lane who don't know how to drive, they should get in the right lane instead of going 55 in the left lane. I get wrathful. You know, I want to tear their bumper off with my car. <laughs> Jesus has a different kind of wrath. You know, I was, uh, when I first got married, uh, I, I learned kind of what human wrath looks like. Uh, because in marriage, you can either be married or right. Uh, that's something I learned fairly quickly. Uh, but this might shock some of you. At times, I annoy my wife. Uh, and I, I kind of take pleasure in annoying my wife. But early in our marriage, Taylor set down the law uh, of, of my annoyance and where the kind of limits ended. And this one particular time, I was really going for it. I was provocating her, as they say. I was really annoying. And uh, Taylor said, Blake, very calmly, she said, Blake, if you don't stop, I'm about to lose it. And I said, what exactly does losing it look like? And she said, I swear, without a hesitation, she said, it looks like me punching you in the throat. Okay, that's the kind of wrath we have. <laughs> She's in kids, so I can say whatever I want. Uh, you guys don't tell her. Uh, <laughs> Jesus' wrath is a, a slow and patient wrath. In fact, this is the wrath of God. God's mercy so far exceeds his wrath. And the proof of that is that we also have breath in our lungs as we stand here today. Now, I don't know what you did last week, but if it was anything like my, my last week, you probably sinned a little bit. You probably were an affront to the glory of God, and yet God does not exercise his wrath on us. He's slow and he is patient. As we look at uh, an Old Testament scripture, Nahum 1.3 talks about this. It says, The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. His path is in the whirlwind and the storm and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord does not delay His promises as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. This is our Lord. His mercy far exceeds His wrath and His anger, but He is a just judge. And eventually, judgment will come. So He begins to make the whip. And this is where we see, I think, four different things that John is trying to show us. Number one, I think Jesus... It's fulfilling prophecy. Number two, Jesus is going to point us to true sacrifice. Number three, Jesus is calling out hypocritical and hollow religion. And number four, I believe Jesus is going to show us who he is. So one more time, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy, pointing us to true sacrifice, and he's calling out hypocritical, hollow religion. And ultimately, he is showing us who he is. John chapter 2, verse 15. It says, After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple. 
Number one, this is Jesus fulfilling prophecy. Now, we are probably the most biblically illiterate society that there is, which is pretty sad because we have more access to it than ever before. Uh, heard a pastor talking about a trip he took to China, and he was amazed that all these people had memorized so much scripture. And he said, why do you guys memorize so much scripture? Or how do you do it? And they said, well, because we know we could go to prison at any time. And if we try to sneak a Bible in, they can take that from us, but they can't take away our mind. And so we store it in our brain so that we can always have God's word with us wherever we go. And he said, wow. Compare that to the American church where we have Bibles all over our house. But what are they? They're, they're just collecting dust. There's a massive difference. And yet the Jewish people of Jesus' time would have known their Bible front and back. And so when John begins to say some of these things, all of these kind of Messiah alarm bells, if you will, begin to go off. John is equating Jesus with the Messiah, with the one we have been waiting for, with the very Son of God. In fact, here's just a couple. Literally, I came up with like 15 different Old Testament texts. I had to narrow it down to probably the top two to show you that John is comparing what's going on here in chapter 2 to the Jewish Messiah that was to come from the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 20 and 21 says this. On that day, the day of the Lord, the words holy to the Lord will be on the bells of the horses. The pots in the house of the Lord will be like sprinkling basins before the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of armies. All who sacrifice will come and use the pots to cook in. And on that day, there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of armies. Now, first thing I notice about this is the fact that it says every pot will be sacred. In other words, Jesus is not just making the temple sacred. In Jesus' ministry, and what this is prophesying is that one day, everything will be the temple. Everything will be holy. What do we see Jesus do in the story just before this? He made uh, holy these pots that were full of purification water, and he turned them into wine. He used them for his holy purposes. And did you notice it said Canaanite? Do you remember where the wedding was? The wedding was in Canaan. And that word Canaanite is actually also a metaphor. Jewish people would have known this for merchants. So it's saying that when God comes, when the Messiah comes, he will drive out the merchants. What's going on here in chapter 2? Jesus is making a whip and he's driving out the money boys. Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. So see, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. John equates John the Baptist with this messenger that's coming before the one. Then it says this, then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. Oh, great. God's coming. That's awesome, right? No. Verse two. But who can endure the day of his coming and who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's bleach. He will be like a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord as in the days of old and the years gone by. Jesus is the Clorox that Malachi talks about. It's time for some spring cleaning. And Jesus is coming in with his whip to fulfill what is going on here in Malachi chapter 3. See, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. Now, what happens next the second thing is that i believe jesus is pointing us to true sacrifice and you get to see that kind of there at the end of the the prophecy in malachi it says then they will present offerings to the lord in righteousness and the offerings of judah and jerusalem will please the lord as in the days of old and years gone by which means at this point in time the offerings are not pleasing the lord look at what it says uh, there in the end of verse 15 it says and he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen their sheep and their oxen. 
What's the significance of him driving not just the people out, but the sacrifices? What we find out in Jesus' ministry is that this whole system of sacrificing animals is about to end. It was important for the people of God to do this because it was pointing forward to what Jesus would ultimately do. It was a shadow. But you see what had happened is they began to look at that shadow and that sign as the thing. It's kind of like if you have a dog and you're trying to point at a toy and the dog won't stop looking at your hand. They're looking at the pointer, but they're not looking at the point of the point. (laughs) That's what's going on here. They think the sacrifices are what it's all supposed to be about. And no, they're pointing forward to the day in which the Messiah would come and be the ultimate sacrifice. In Hebrews, uh, New Testament book, the author picks up on this idea. And it says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkled those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who works through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish, cleanse our conscience from dead works so that we can serve the living God. Or in 1 John, John puts it even more simple than that. He himself, being Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Jesus is the end of the sacrifice because he is the ultimate sacrifice. I don't need to slit the throat of a goat anymore because the son of God himself hung on a tree and bled and died in my place. So does that mean we don't have any sacrifices at all anymore? No. As the early church, we still have sacrifices. They're just not the sacrifices you can see. And honestly, the motive behind the sacrifices that we see in the Old Testament are the same as the motives that we see in the New Testament. The sacrifices were always supposed to be out of a joyful, grateful heart for what God has done. Not because you had to do it, but because you wanted to do it, because you were so overwhelmed with what God had done that you had nothing else to do but to give generously of that which was yours. Uh, In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 and 16, it says, Therefore, through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips that confess his name. Don't neglect to do what is good and to share, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. Romans 12, 1 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. In other words, Paul is saying, you want to know what your sacrifice is? Your gratitude to God is? It's not something you can find in sheep pen. It's your life. Your life is on the altar of God. I actually like the way the, the one-year Bible talks about this. It says, God wants you to offer all of yourself and all of your lives. Your time, your ambitions, possessions, ears, mouths, and sexuality, as well as your mind, emotions, and attitudes. Paul's description of a living sacrifice also reminds us that you have to go on offering your life as a sacrifice to God, offering the whole of your life for all of your life. In Old Testament times, living sacrifice would be a contradiction. The whole point of sacrifice was that it was killed. Our act of worship is no longer to bring a sacrifice, but to be one ourselves. We remain living. It is all of us that is being offered. Worship is about what I say with my tongue. It's about what I watch, what I think, and where I go with my feet. It's everything. And as Tim Keller says, the problem with living sacrifices is that they are often trying to crawl off the altar. (laughs) And that is so true, is it not? Have you tried to be a living sacrifice for the glory of God? Constantly in my life. You guys are all holy and probably polish your halos at night. But in my life, I tend to want to serve my own wants and my own wills and my own desires. It'd be much easier if I could just bring a goat to church with me on Sunday and sacrifice that thing. But God has called me to something greater. He doesn't just want what I can bring him. He wants my heart behind it. You know, some people ask me, Blake, do we still have to tithe? Do we have to give 10% of our money? I know what they mean. They mean like to the church. But I'm thinking... 
No, you don't have to do that. What you have to do is give 100% of your money to God. It's all His. Every dollar in your bank account is God's money. Every minute on your calendar is God's time. Everything you do and everything you are are to be for God. Now, you'll never do that if you don't love God. This is the whole point of Jesus' ministry is that you would love God. Not that you would use God to get what you want. That's a, a sorry, sad religion. But that you would see God for who He is and you would love Him. When you fall in love, guess what? You freely give. You know, I, I, I had no problem spending a bunch of money traveling to see Taylor and buying her flowers and buying her gifts. You know why? Because I loved her. <laughs> and yet, if I had to do that, if I had to buy you a gift all the time, I'd probably grumble and be mad about it. <laughs> Not that I don't love you, but I don't love you that much. <laughs> Jesus is saying, we ought to love God above all things. And if we do, then this kind of worship comes naturally and easy to us. This is the kind of worship he wants. He wants our passionate love for him. And then number three is Jesus is calling out hypocritical, hollow worship. This is where it gets a little bit intense because Jesus gets a little bit intense. He's calling out hypocritical and hollow worship. And this is something that friends as a church family, we've got to watch out for like cancer. This is a toxic growth that happens in churches naturally. And we must always be fighting it, first and foremost, in our own hearts, but ultimately as a church body. This is the thing that will destroy our church. Now, we might go on for hundreds of years doing uh, hollow worship. And people might give money and we might survive, but we will long ago go from being a church to a country club. And this is what Jesus hates. When God talks about his wrath, it is very rarely towards the kind of people you maybe think would get his wrath. No, it's not the drunkards. It's not the sinners. It's not the tax collectors. Jesus loves those guys. You know who Jesus has a special kind of wrath for? Guys like me who stand up here and talk about the things of God and then don't live them out. Hypocritical and hollow. People like you and I who sit in these pews on Sunday and then as we leave this place, we pass 14 homeless people without giving a thought of loving them. Hypocritical and hollow worship. Look at what it says, verse 15. This is where Jesus goes total John Wayne. Awesome. He also poured out the money changers' coins and he overturned the tables. Just imagine the image of this if you can. Jesus is whipping animals. He's cracking his whip about people saying, get out of here. Remember, this is the time in which the temple would have been overflowing with people. People from all over are in Jerusalem. And it's like, who is this guy? You know, he's not a priest. He's not anything. He, did, he looks completely normal to us, and yet he's going nuts, flipping over the money changers' tables. Why did he do that? Well, because a big problem in Jesus' time was that these Pharisees used people to get money. They used people to enrich themselves. There's a story in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is sitting with his disciples. It's a great story of faith, but it's also a story of why Jesus came to judge these religious people. They, they are watching the people give to the temple and all these rich Pharisees come and they're making a big show of all the money that they're putting in. And then there's this lady who comes and she gives two mites, which are smaller than pennies. And Jesus says, hey, boys, look, and he says to his disciples, this woman gave more than anybody else because she gave all that she had to live on. She gave all that she had to live on. It was an act of faith. But then right after that is a judgment because he says after that, truly, I tell you, not one stone of this temple will stand in other words, one day this temple would be destroyed. And by the way, in AD 70, Jesus' prophecy came true. The temple was destroyed and it has never been rebuilt. Why did Jesus say it would be destroyed? 
because he hated the kind of religious hypocrisy that would take advantage of a woman who was poor, that would give all that she had to live on, and they would take it to enrich themselves without giving a second thought to her or her needs. Jesus cares about people. He does not care about our traditions or our rituals. And the moment we begin to value those rituals and those traditions more than we value people, we are in a lot, and I mean a lot, of trouble, friends. Matthew chapter 23 points out these two things that the Pharisees get wrong. Chapter 23, Jesus speaking, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, and yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These things should have been done without neglecting the others. Blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but gulp down a camel. (laughs) I love that. Jesus can really roast people pretty well. Uh, What he's saying is, he's like, you know, you have a filter and it filters out gnats, but there's these huge camels coming through your filter. You know, you're missing the major points. You're minoring on the majors and you're majoring on the minors. It reminds me of a a story of a pastor who uh, was distraught on a Sunday morning. Because uh, the night before, a a sex trafficking ring had been broken literally across the street from the church building. Literally across the street from the place where they were worshiping with their hands raised, where he was preaching God's word, where he was saying to be a good neighbor, to love your neighbor, and to push back darkness. He could throw a stone at this building where massive darkness was going on. And he said he felt really convicted because he had never taken the time to go over and introduce himself to the person who owned this place. He had seen girls coming in and out of this place, and yet he had never stopped to wave at them, say hi to them, or ask them what was going on in that place. And he felt very, very uh, condemned in those moments. It was like a, a clear moment for him. So he stood up before his church family, and he began to actually work through excuses for why it could have happened next to them. And then at the end of his list of excuses, he says, now, none of these actually are true. This list is actually just a bunch of BS. Except for he didn't say BS. He said the actual word. And everybody, you know, as you can imagine, uh, you got to think like a really traditional church. You know, grandmas just literally died in the pews. Uh, <laughs> you know, people standing up, covering their hand, covering their kids' ears and stuff. And, uh, and then he, he said, he said to them, he said, and this is our problem. You guys are more concerned that I said a four-letter word than you are that a sex trafficking ring was taking place a stone throw away from us and we did nothing about it. He said, this is what it means when Jesus says, we strain out the gnat, but we swallow camels. Friends, in our own lives, let us not be people who feel really good about ourselves because we came to a gathering like this. And then all week we look like we sucked on a sour pickle and we're mad all the time and we're angry and we don't help people and we're not loving the people that are before us. This is what Jesus is talking about. And then uh, he, he continues to go in on them. Verse 25 and 26, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside of it may also be clean. In other words, he's saying, man, you guys look really good on the outside, but on the inside you're dead. In another place, he calls them whitewashed tombs. <laughs> uh, they clean the outside of the tomb really good, but on the inside there's death. This is what we would call, in, in like modern terms, uh, virtue signaling. It's something you see a lot in politics. Uh, I'll offend everybody here in just a second by uh, giving you a conservative example and a progressive example. So if I offend you first, just wait for the second one. Everybody will be mad here in just a second. An example of virtue signaling on the conservative side that maybe you've seen is somebody who rails against abortion on Facebook. They post uh, all of these things about abortion and the evils of abortion. 
And people like their posts and their conservative friends say, oh, look what a virtuous person. They agree with me. While at the very same time, they have never spoken to a single mother who is in poverty, trying to make the hardest decision of her life. They have never actually went to one of these clinics, unless they're holding a sign condemning, but they've never actually went to one of these clinics to say, how can I assist you? You can live with me. They've never thought about adoption, and they even laugh when you say something about foster care. Oh, foster care? Please, no, not me. You see, they neglect the things that would actually make a difference, but they virtue signal to everybody how good and righteous they are. On the progressive side, you know, it would maybe look something like, uh, not that these examples ever actually happen on Facebook, you know, it's just me making this stuff up. Uh, But on the progressive side, it might be somebody who would say, "Uh, I believe that immigrants should be taken care of. And they post all these stories about immigrants and, and what they think our political leaders ought to do about it. And yet they have never even considered that maybe they should load up some bottles of water and go down to the border and hand out these waters in 100 degree heat and help the people there who are trying their best to do what they can. They've never even thought about the idea of sending a dollar of their money to an organization that would actually help these immigrants. And they certainly just they would laugh if you suggested that one of these immigrants might need a place to stay and that they could live with them. This is virtue signaling. And what do we want when we virtue signal? We want the glory that comes with being on the right team. We want our conservative friends to say, yeah, he's one of us. Or our progressive friends to say, yeah, they're one of us. But in reality, are we doing anything to help? Now, this doesn't just take place in politics. This takes place in the Christian church. Some of us feel very good because we read our Bible this week. We feel really good because we prayed. We feel really good because we showed up on a Sunday and we sang songs and we got chills on our neck. But those things are just virtue signaling. If it is not also uh, taken with considerable real and true worship in the real world. This is what Jesus came to call out. He called out hypocritical, hollow worship. If you're like me, when I was preaching uh, this week to myself and learning this text, about this time I felt pretty darn guilty. <laughs> you know, I, I preach uh, a lot better than what I actually live. It's very easy for me to yell at you guys with a microphone on my face, but then I've got to take it off and live. And that's a lot more difficult, is it not? Amen. So I pray that if you're a Christ follower here today, I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to hopefully bring the same whip that Jesus brought to correct us. And what, what the Lord really showed me this week was, it reminded me of rather, is that anytime I come to a moment like this, I have two options. I can rebel. I can say, that's not true. I hate that guy. Never liked him anyways. And his glasses are stupid. <laughs> or I can repent. I can say, God, you've shown me. You've shown me. And so now I must live differently because of who you are and what you say. You're not just the Lord of the wine. You're the Lord of the whip. And I accept you as both. Now, ultimately, the last uh, thing that we see here in this text is Jesus is showing us who he is. And this is where the claims get outright blasphemous. If he's not if he's not right, if he's not telling the truth. Verse 16 says he told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And the first question I struggled with this week is why doves? Why does he, he point out doves when he says to get these things out of here? He doesn't include it with the other sacrifices. The reason why he does that is because in the Bible, doves represent the Holy Spirit. Doves represent the Spirit. And what he's saying is he's saying, get the Spirit out of this temple. Because God's Spirit is no longer found in this place. God's temple is no longer a place you can go to that has stones, that has an air conditioner, that has a floor. This place, friends, is no more holy than any other place in the world. The Spirit does not reside in a place anymore. 
Well, where does the Spirit reside? Well, we have to go to Jesus' baptism in Luke chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. It says, when all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. As he was praying, heaven opened, verse 22, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a physical appearance like a, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Where's the Spirit? You don't know what God wants? You don't know who God is? You don't go to the temple. You go to the new temple. You go to Jesus Christ. He is the place where God's Spirit ultimately resides. You guys see how crazy this is and why they wanted to kill him? Can you imagine if I stood up here today and I said, you know what, forget the word of God. I'm the word of God. Forget the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you what you need to do. You guys would be right to put me in a mental institution. And he's off his rocker. And yet these are the things Jesus says. And then it gets worse than that, I think. Because in the next uh, part where it says, stop turning my father's house into a market, he's equating himself as one with God. (laughs) He's calling himself God. He said, I am God in flesh. This, this is like cult-type stuff. You know, you expect him to pull up the Kool-Aid next. Calling himself God. Now, he doesn't just say, uh, you know, our Father, like he does in the Lord's Prayer. Like, we are all from God. We're all God's children. That's true. But he says, my Father. And what he's talking about here is not biology, but he's talking about the relationship. He's talking about the interconnectedness of Father and Son. So, when you think about a Father and a Son, one has to exist for the other to exist. I am not a Father because I don't have a Son. My son doesn't exist because I haven't fathered him yet. You see how that works? For there to be a father, there must be a son. For there to be a son, there must be a father. What is Jesus saying? Without me, there is no God the Father. Without God the Father, there is no me. We are one in the same. And this is Jesus' ministry. This is what he says throughout. I have come to do the Father's work. I have come to fulfill the Father's desires. What I say is what the Father said to me. And there's, there's a scene where one of the disciples says, Jesus, will you show us God the Father? If you'll show us God the Father, we'll be good. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen God the Father. And this is why C.S. Lewis says this. And Zach, you guys can go ahead and come up. I'm coming to a close. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying that really foolish thing that people often say about him, him being Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Uh, Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a friend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Friends, if we're willing to accept Jesus as the Lord of the wine, bringing us joy as we did last week. We must also accept him as the Lord of the whip with total authority over our lives. There's a scene at the end of the the Chronicles of Narnia in the book where one of the characters is going to Aslan, the lion. And Aslan is a representation of Jesus. And uh, the character is a little bit frightened because it's a lion. And so she asks, "Is, is he safe? He seems quite scary to me. And the other character responds with, of course he's not safe. He's a roaring lion, but he's good. And that's what matters.
you're looking for safety, if you're looking for comfort, don't come to Jesus. Ultimately, don't come to Jesus. You come to Jesus because you believe He is who He says He is. It's the reality. And we don't get to change the reality. My house is on fire. I don't like the fact that it's on fire. But just because I don't like it doesn't mean it's not on fire. If Jesus is who He says He is, it might mean some things that are really scary for your life. But it doesn't mean He's not who He says He is. And these are the claims that we must deal with as we come through this Easter season. Friends, let me pray for us. Father, this is a hard word. This is the kind of word that makes people walk away. And yet, God, it is true. So, Lord, let us see you as who you are. You're good. And Jesus, coming to you is the best thing we could possibly do. Living in light of who you are and what you say to do is the best thing we can possibly do. God, I pray that as you bring wine to those who need joy today, you would also bring the whip to those of us who need the whip. God, I pray today you would comfort the afflicted and you would afflict the comfortable. Friends, if you would, take about 20 seconds with your eyes closed, head bowed, and say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through this word? Father, I pray that you give us the courage to obey all that you've called us to do. It's in your name I pray, amen. Let's stand and worship, friends. Thanks for tuning in to the Ascent Church podcast. You can check in with us on social media at My Ascent Church. New episodes each week. Thanks. Thanks.